It was last June, and I had been mentoring a young man in the ministry. I teach for Northern Seminary every year, and he was in my class, and he was just one of those standout students, you know, one of those guys that you knew God's hand was on. And so I got to know him a little bit more, and he asked me if he could shadow me for a year, and so he literally shadowed me for a full year. Just wherever I went, he went. When I was in my study, he was there for meetings, for lunch engagements, for planning sessions, for visioneering. Whatever it was, he just shadowed me. So we got extremely close, and I've come to understand that mentoring is men touring each other's lives, or women touring each other's lives. So if I was on a mountaintop, he could go with me. If I was in the valley, he could go with me. He shadowed me. Well, through that experience, God began to clarify his call on Bobby's life. And before you knew it, Bobby and his wife, Jackie, with four children under the age seven, had fully surrendered everything over to the Lord and felt called to be missionaries. And so our church family just pulled them in and loved on them and positioned them for that. Well, the International Mission Board that we're connected to as Southern Baptists commissioned Bobby and Jackie to be missionaries. Well, this past June, Bobby and I and another student minister in our city of Baton Rouge there who speaks fluent, he went with us. And I'll never forget, Bobby had never been to this city where he would be planting his life. He'd never been there. They just studied it via internet and they had a few different maps and guides to go through but had never been there. And I'll never forget after that extensive plane flight into Tokyo and then finally the city where they're going to be planting their lives. As we drove into that city, there's 4.5 million people in this city. It's the state of Louisiana in this one city. It's Houston in this one city. And Bobby began to just weep before God as he went into this city seeing the millions of people where he would invest the rest of his life. I have a feeling that's what the Puritans felt when they came to this new world. They weren't really sure about what they were getting into. They had heard about it somewhat, but it was still a little gray for them. The fog had yet not yet lifted. So for them coming to the new world, I would imagine it was extremely emotional as they contemplated what they were leaving behind. The familiar, the well-known, the relationships, the connections they had. And now they're crossing the Atlantic to come to the new world, to embrace a new life and a new opportunity. And it's a brand new experience and a clean slate, a fresh canvas upon which to paint their lives. So the Puritans come to the new world and they have to express their identity. They have to express their faith in God. What will it look like? And I want us to go there. Now, before we go there, I want you to understand who I am. I'm a child of the king, married to the greatest woman on planet earth and have the two of the finest children. I want you to see them. Let's see how this works. That's my family. Now, I know what you guys are saying. Oh, man, boy, grace of God at work in Trammell's life. (laughs) It's my wife, Tanya. She and I have been married 16 and a half years. And then my daughter, who is 13, Tori. I can relate to Scott's message about teenagers and how rearing teenagers, your prayer life goes to a whole new level. And then our son, Austin, is 8, and he'll be 9 on July 4th. And so you need to understand 
that my passion in life is to know God intimately and to make Him known globally and to serve my family. So you need to know that before we go to the Puritans. All right? You ready to move forward? Well, let's talk about the Puritans in society. The Puritans in society. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want us to just take a tour, a journey, and I want us to make some comparisons. We're going to dive into the New World and the Puritans' land, and they establish themselves in the New World. And I want us to get a glimpse of how they express their faith in society, how they express their faith in marriage and in parenting. And with that, I want us to just kind of shoulder that with, what about contemporary Christianity? Now, what about us? How do we express our faith in society? How do we make a difference in our society? How do we express our love for God in society? And what does marriage look like in the Christian faith today? Whoo! And we'll have to be careful there because we could have a lot of fun and get in trouble. So we'll just explore that for just a little bit. And then I want to turn the corner and I want to look at what is Christian faith expressing itself in parenting look like? So we're going to look at society, we're going to look at marriage, and we're going to look at parenting. And you need to really have fun with this, okay? Because it could hurt ourselves. We could get hurt in this and say, oh my, well, look where they were and look where we are. Or look where they were, look where we are. So we're going to have to be careful with this, but I want us to have fun, okay? Go ahead and elbow your neighbor and say, it's okay. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Go ahead and elbow your neighbor and say, it's okay to laugh at yourself. Now look at him and say, I'm going to be laughing at you. <laughs> you might as well laugh with me. All right, well, let's have fun with this. Let's talk, first of all, about Puritans and society. And the one word I would want to plant in your heart when we think about this is the word order. For them, it was all about order because as they studied creation, as they understood God in His Word, they came to understand that God was a God of order. Everything in its place. Every relationship had its place. Everything in nature had its place. And so they would study the Word of God. They would look at nature and realize that God is a God of order and His order ought to be infused in our relationships. Let's see how they felt about it. Notice this. The essence of the social order, this is from their writings, the essence of the social order lay in the superiority of husband over wife Parents over children, master over servants in the family, ministers and elders over congregation in the church, rulers over subjects in the state. Now, that created tension in the room, didn't it? That bothers us that they would embrace such a sterile concept, so rigid. It doesn't sound very relational. It sounds like it's a male chauvinistic society. And what you need to understand is that the Puritans embraced this God of order, that God had everything in a certain arrangement, a certain order, and that was to be exhibited in life, in society, in church, and especially in the family. In fact, as you study the writings of the Puritans, you'll come to learn quickly that when a woman was married, when she came into that relationship, into that covenant, she forfeited the right to own property for herself. It all belonged to him. She had to submit to his authority. She had to willingly give up her rights to her own property. 
Now, that worked for the Puritans. Now, would that work well for us? Now, that made you feel better, didn't it? All right? It worked for the Puritans. They embraced that. They understood that's who they are, so they taught their children that. And so the children saw this order modeled in the home. They saw this order rigidly modeled in the church. And so it perpetuated itself. A very tense environment, a very strong environment of here's who's in charge and here's who's next and here's who's next. The rank and file was clearly orchestrated. Now, of course, that would create tension, as you can imagine, in our time, in our society. But for the Puritans, they were coming to the new world and they had to figure out how to express life, how to express their faith in this new environment. And one thing they did not negotiate was this order. They embraced a very strict order. Now, let's shift gears for just a moment. And let's talk about contemporary Christianity and society. What do you think is the one word that would capture us? If their word was order, that God is a God of order, and relationships will exhibit that, church, family, and society will exhibit that order, what do you think we would embrace in our current contemporary Christianity? You ready for it? Equality. What you talking about, Stephen? Equality. Now, that is our contemporary Christian makeup. That is our current domain. Now, does it mean that every good Southern Baptist would aspire to this? No. But when we look at contemporary Christianity as a package in America, the common thread, the common denominator is that contemporary Christianity embraces equality. Now, where do we go for that? Where you can go to the Bible... In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 16, read this aloud with me. You ready? Here we go. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Equality is seen in what's called the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. That what we embrace in our contemporary Christianity is that every believer is a priest unto God. That every child of God has direct access to God. So that when we confess our sin, we confess our sin directly to God. We're doing a series on Wednesday nights on how to pray through the Old Testament tabernacle. And as we study that and unravel that on Wednesday nights, one thing we'll learn is that in that day you had to have a priest to mediate. And then we learn in the New Testament that Jesus is our mediating priest. In fact, He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession. He mediates. Because of our relationship with Him, because He lives in us now, we have direct access to God. Now, do you see how this concept of every believer is a priest unto God? You directly answer to God for yourself and your sin and your faith. Do you see how in our contemporary Christian culture this could impact 
this concept of order versus equality? Well, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm going to go get along with God and see what He wants me to do. Who are you to tell me how I'm to act or operate or conduct my life? I'm a priest unto God. Now, do you think that's what Jesus was trying to say as He preached the Sermon on the Mount? Was that you, as a child of the King, are to abuse the authority you have in Christ? No. Do you think that Jesus would say, don't worry about what anyone else says or any parameters or any guidelines or any rules or regulations in society? No, Jesus would say that you need to honor the government as long as the government honors me. So this is not a license for us to gray out the lines. But what we understand in our Christian culture, in our context, because of the priesthood of every believer, that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world that it will directly impact how you express your faith in this land. Now, as believers, should we embrace that God is a God of order? Yes. Should we take it to an extreme to where we can no longer be relational with other people, especially within the family? Is there room for equality in the faith? What do you think? Well, that's tight and tense, isn't it? You mean that the ground at the foot of the cross is level? There's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no slave or free? That we are one in Christ? Equality. Now, I want you to wrestle with that. I think you can take that off the chart. Or I think you can so erase it and eradicate it that it has no impact. But I want you to wrestle with your position in Christ and how you are to express your faith in our contemporary culture. I want to ask you to write this word down in your notes. Here's what God's called us to do in society. The Puritans understood that they were to come and make a difference in the new world. For them, it was more of preservation. Preserving, and salt does that. And there's an element where God's called us to preserve holiness and dignity in our culture. But the impetus of this, Matthew chapter 5, is that we influence... Because salt influences. It preserves and it influences. If you write that word down, influence. And here's a question I want to ask you this morning. How are you leveraging the influence God has given you? How are you leveraging the influence that God is giving you? Puritans in society is all about order and preservation. In the contemporary Christian environment that God's placed us in here in America, it's about influencing people for Christ. It's about leveraging our influence to advance the kingdom of God. That means whether you are a man, woman, boy, or girl, it means that if you are very mature spiritually or just a babe in Christ, there is equality in the family of God. That there is nobody who isn't somebody in the family of God. Let's talk about marriage. Now, if you're ready to talk about marriage, would you raise your hand? Now, if you're just not real sure you want to go there, would you slowly raise your hand? All right. We had a pretty good response on that one. Let's talk about Puritans in marriage. Now, this is going to amaze you in the readings I've had this week. Uh, I've, I've been entertained at times as I've studied the Puritan marriages. And wow, you know... Ladies, if you ever get to a point where you just have had enough in your marriage and think, I'm about to dry up and die here, would you call me? I have a couple books I want you to read. 
And you'll think that you are in the river of living water compared to what I've read this week. It's unreal. Some of the marriages and the interactions that they had. It's because of their view of marriage. Now, let me give you the concept. They embraced what was called limited love. Limited love. Now, why would they do that? Why would the ministers at the weddings implore that this new couple limit their love, that they restrain their love, that their love be reluctant toward one another? It's back to order. Their concept was God's a God of order and God's number one and He deserves my best. And so I can't overdo loving my spouse because I may go too far in loving her and it'll make my love for God not measure up. So it's back to order. Their concept was that my primary love is to be God. That the object of my affection is not to be my spouse, it's to be God. And so I'm going to restrain my love toward my mate. I'm going to restrict my love. I'm going to limit my love toward her. So that I will not come even close to the edge of loving her too much and not loving God enough. Isn't that interesting? I found that amazing. That was fascinating. Now, it doesn't give us an excuse, does it? But it's fascinating. Look at this excerpt. Wives were instructed that woman was made ultimately for God, but immediately for man. Some of you ladies out there are thinking, I would have killed him. He wouldn't have been in my home very long. I would have hit him over the head with a pot. If he thought I was made immediately for him, it's all about him. Now, what's amazing about this Puritan concept, this is how most men think today. It's all about us. We're it. I mean, Bobby Welch told us that at our patriotic service. You're it. But he wasn't talking about men that you're it. He's talking about God has tagged you to be it, to influence the world for Christ. It's not about you. But the Puritan mindset was, the wife is here to serve man so that man could better serve God. Well, some of you are just, oh, you're just going to be so nauseous as we unfold this. Look at the next one. Human mortality gave a grim warning to every Puritan couple that God had placed a limit on their love for marriage ended where? At the grave. So their concept that God is to be number one, you restrict your love toward your mate and pour all your love out toward God. Then their basis was, well, your spouse is terminal. She's not going to last long. At the grave, it's over. It severs the covenant. You won't be married in heaven nor given in marriage. Marriage ends at the grave, but your marriage to God is going to last for all eternity. And so that ought to motivate you, men, to restrict your love even more. You know what I've wrestled with this week? Did the women in these marriages feel love at all? How'd they endure? How'd they survive? Or was it just accepted because of order? They would limit their love. Well, let's talk about us. Contemporary Christianity and marriage. Are you ready for this one? Okay, this is where we're going to lighten up a little bit and have fun with this. Okay, here we go. Love languages. 
It's not about limiting our love toward our mate, limiting our love toward them. It's not about restricting our love. It's about learning how to speak their love language and speak it fluently. What are you talking about? Where are you going with this? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, we love that verse. There's a certain verse that men love. Can you all find it? Well, see how quickly you went to it. I included verse 21 because you've got to understand the context. If you don't understand the context, you'll misread it and make it a pretext, and you'll build a castle on a pretext and think you're right. Look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, just in your mind, if you'll just inscribe in your mind, mutual submission means mutual respect. So we submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. Why am I going to submit to you? Because I love Jesus. Why am I going to submit and have mutual respect for you? Because I'm in love with Jesus Christ. And His love in me helps me to submit to you. Let's continue. Now the fun part. Wives. Husbands love this. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. See, I told you, honey. I knew it. I knew it. I just didn't know where it was. (laughs) For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is a Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, man, you may want to underline that right there. There it is. Get it. Hurry. Husbands, uh uh-oh, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what did he do, ladies? Gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So men, God's called us to love our wives as Jesus loved the church. What did Jesus do for the church? Died for her. Now, God's not asking you to die for your wife. He's asking you to live for your wife. He's asking you to serve her sacrificially. He's asking you to love her by choice sacrificially. What He's saying is, you need to love your spouse with the kind of love that Jesus loved the church with. And Jesus demonstrated His love by giving His life. What He's saying is, put her needs before your own. Now, does that come naturally, men? No, it's supernatural. Let's see what the rest of this verse says. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now we're talking. Have you ever seen a man work out in a room of mirrors? You know, I've worked out a few times and I love to watch men pump iron and go watch them as they go to the water fountain. And as they're walking, they're looking. They're checking themselves out. Why? Because men like themselves. Have you noticed that? It's all about us. Men like themselves. And God understands that pride. God understands that self-absorption. And that's why God says, you love your wife like you love your body. Now, those of you who don't have a washboard tummy like Louis Miori, it's okay. Maybe for you... It's, it's indulgence. If you want that bluebell ice cream late at night, it's good for you. You want that. It's going to build you up. It's going to help you grow. <laughs> Whatever Tanya's picked on me, he said, Oh, Stephen, it's, you're letting it get away from you. 
you know, after I've eaten a brownie with ice cream and M&M's on top and chocolate syrup and whipped cream on top, you're getting, you let, and I say, baby, I'm just giving you more to love. <laughs> so men, love your wives as you love your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. Now look down at verse 33. Let's read this out loud together. Can you see it in the back? Here we go. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So here's the tension. The Puritans, they embrace this concept of Limit your love. Moderate your love. Because you don't want to love your spouse more than you love God, so restrict the love. And don't forget order. Whereas in contemporary Christian context, what the Word of God would teach us and what we embrace is we need to learn how to love our spouse and better yet, how to speak their love language. Dr. Gary Chapman wrote a tremendous book, The Five Love Languages. I hope you're familiar with it. Here they are, the five love languages. And we're not going to do a lesson on this. I just want to give this to you to expose you to it if you haven't been. The five love languages. Now, see if you can identify your love language. And here's what it means. It means this is how you best receive love and how you best express love. Okay? Here we go. Words of affirmation. Now, I can spend just a few minutes with you, and I can usually detect what your love language is, especially if it's words of affirmation, because words of affirmation will flow from you freely. And what that is telling us is that's how you best express love, but it's also how you best receive love. And then there's quality time. Now, I came to know this one firsthand. Tanya and I had been married just a short time, moved to Folsom, Louisiana, just north of New Orleans while I was uh, in seminary. I was pastoring First Baptist Church of Folsom. And on this particular day, on a Saturday, I went outside and detailed her vehicle. took me about two hours, I mean, washed it, cleaned it, dried it armor all the tires, and even took Q-tips and cleaned out her air vents and put a bounce sheet under her seat to make it smell new again. And then I went inside. And she never mentioned it. She never said anything about me detailing her car. And finally, I got upset about it because I did it so she would know I love her. Don't you know I love you? And she was upset that I spent so much time outside. She said, well, if you were trying to communicate love to me, I would have rather you been inside with me. What do you think her love language is? Quality time. What was I speaking? Acts of service. Serve you, serve you, serve you. Can I do something for you? And so I was speaking it fluently, but it was a language she could not connect with. So I had to learn to speak her love language. Now, does that come naturally to you? No, it's supernatural. So you have words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts to me is the easiest one. Just give them a gift and they're happy. I think my mother has that one because she's all about, what would you get for Christmas? What would you get for Christmas? What would you get for your birthday? What would you get for Father's Day? And at Christmas time, the one who receives love best by gifts and loves to express love by gifts, they're watching everybody. No, don't open your jet. Let's watch them. And they're, you know, focus on them. You know their love language is gifts. Or maybe it's acts of service. Or maybe physical touch. Did you know that about 90% of married people are opposites? Did you know that? Say that with me. 90% of marriages are opposites. That's just normal. They're opposite. And opposites attract, but opposites also 
attack. And you'll have one that's very outgoing, goes in a room and touches everybody, wants to see everybody and talk to everybody, and you'll have the other who's more reserved, more contemplative. Is one better than the other? No, they're just different. But they're opposites. You'll have one whose love language may be words of affirmation. They're high verbal and they're lobbing out affirmation and they're waiting to receive some and they get none. And maybe the other one, their love language may be quality time. And what they want from you is for you just to disconnect from your busy life and just spend some one-on-one with them and be fully present. And you're speaking their love language. Out of all the counseling I've done for the last 20 years, I think I've met maybe two or three couples who had the same personality profile and same love languages. It's rare. I met a couple, they're both high D-type personalities. They're both sergeants, drivers, doers, bulldozers, bulldogs, and they got married, had two children, both bulldogs. You know what their home was? World War III. (laughs) What God is calling us to do is to learn how to love. And this just takes to a whole new level, doesn't it? Learning to speak the language of our spouse, their love language. So, it's not about restricting your love, it's about learning to love. Let's talk for for a moment about Puritans and parenting. Wow, if they restrict their love from their mate, how do you think they treat their children? And we know there had to be some Puritans who were affectionate. But overall, as they expressed their faith in the new world, they also limited their affection in parenting. And what do you think that would be about? Why would they restrict affection? Why would they limit their affection toward their child? What do you think? If they embrace that God's a God of order, and He is, and they kind of took it to an extreme... If they limited their love toward their spouse so that they would not love their spouse more than they love God, why do you think they would limit their affection toward their children? For the same reason. They didn't want to threaten their love for God. You know, I was reading this week on how the Puritans would grieve. And they would be disciplined for over-grieving the loss of a mate or the loss of a child or the loss of a loved one. So it was not only parenting and marriage, it was in grieving. If you over-expressed grief, it meant that you loved them too much. So you had to withhold grief as well. Well, they would limit their affection. I wonder how that impacted their children. What do you think? I wonder how their children, when they got married, how they expressed their faith and their love. Look at this quote. The Puritans had come to the New England for a variety of reasons, but one of them, one of the strongest, by their own account, was the urge to perpetuate pure religion among their children. Now, that's a good thing. They wanted what was best for their children. They wanted to create an environment where they could thrive spiritually. Now, that's a good thing. But I want you to notice this next clip. Often they would place their children in other families in fear of spoiling them with too great affection. 
Their decision was justified on the grounds that children learn better manners by being brought up in another home other than their own. Now, I almost slid down a slide and grabbed onto that one. You know, I've seen that happen with my son, Austin. He's very compliant. He's very sharp. He's a good listener. He's very uh, conscientious. He's just like his mama. He doesn't miss anything. Very observant. But I've noticed that when I go outside to coach him, whether it's in golf or football or baseball, when I go to coach him, he's got a little edge. Almost as though he doesn't want to be coached, that he's got it figured out. But I'll take that same child who belongs to me. He is me in many ways. And I'll place him in another environment, maybe with another coach. And he just thrives and smiles and, sure, coach, sure, coach, yeah, I'll do Oh, you want me to run another lap? Yeah, I'll do it. So I've thought about this. Maybe we need to put him in another home for a little while. (laughs) You know, I'm picking. Isn't that amazing how the Puritans would embrace that because... They didn't want to spoil their children. And you know what? They'll learn better manners in someone else's home. And so let's, let's ship them off. What about contemporary Christianity and parenting? This one's going to hurt, and we're going to close uh, real quickly. Here we go. You ready? Contemporary Christianity and parenting. And this isn't biblical. This isn't what God wants. I'm just telling you this is reality in our contemporary setting. What does that say? Child-centered parenting. Help us, Lord. Child-centered parenting. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel. Hero Israel is the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Jews would embrace the Shema. They would memorize. They would teach their children to memorize it. And they made the Word of God a part of their life, a fixture in their lives. But we've gotten away from that. Well, Scott Rowling nailed it this morning in his message. We expect the church to rear our children spiritually. You nurture my child. I'll drop him off. You you spiritualize him. You take him through the spiritual car wash and then let me have him when you're through. A few years ago, I had a mom come see me. She was desperate and just extremely down. And she said really having trouble with my son. I said, well, what's going on? She said, well, his room is upstairs and we've called him several times. He's hooked on internet pornography. And I said, well, I tell you what, why don't you just bring the computer down in the family room and face the monitor toward the family room and don't let him get on the computer unless somebody's in the room. She said, oh, I can't do that. I said, why not? She said, well, he'll be mad. And I said, oh, I'm, oh, then don't do it. Because the last thing you want is for your son to be mad. You know what that's called? Child-centered parenting. Don't dare let your child get mad at you. It'd be much better that he get addicted to internet pornography because pornography teaches that there's no risk. Pornography teaches there's no rejection and there's no relationship. 
So they get married and they expect married life to be that and it's not. So they go back. I don't want him to be mad. That's called child-centered parenting. Well, let me give you some points for home. Let's turn this thing around. Head for home, okay? Here we go. You ready for this? Now, I just want to map out some practical steps how to plug this in on Monday morning, okay? Here's the main point. Maintain intimacy with God. Lavish God with your love. You're not going to blow God off of His throne by loving Him too much. He can handle it. You focus your energy, your passion, your love toward God. And you've got to maintain that. And I've given you some practical steps. How many of you have that in your listening guide? See that on your listening guide? Some practical steps on how to maintain intimacy with God. I put in there, select a time, place, and plan to have a daily time alone with God. Secure a godly mentor to help you establish and maintain a spiritual growth path. In other words, find a godly person and walk with them. Ask them to show you how to walk with God and how to grow and to stretch and to become more like Jesus. And then stay committed to a connection group. That's what I really appreciate about your Sunday school class, though it's mega, it's very large. You have smaller connection groups so that you can stay connected and be loved and loved and be known and know. I thank God for that. And if you're not connected to a connection group, get connected. And it's going to help you in your walk with God. Then action step number two. Master your spouse's love language. You say, whoa, you know, that's a foreign language. Well, you need to become bilingual. Well, how do you find out what your love language is and what hers is? Well, or his is. Well, you can buy Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, and learn the five love languages. You can pray for God's favor. God, give me favor as I learn to speak a new language. Another option, practice communicating love based on your spouse's love language. You see how that works? So you can get the book, study it, learn the languages, and then practice communicating your spouse's love language. Now, it's very important that you learn their love language. And here's what's so cool. You can learn your children's love language. Let me give you an example. I'm in my recliner. My daughter walks through the den in our previous home where you could walk through. And her room is over here, but she walks way out of her way and she hits me on the leg as she goes to her room. What do you think one of her love languages is? Physical touch. When she was a little girl, she said, Dad, 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 come in here with me. She had a Barbie tent set up in her bedroom and I was working on my dissertation reading all the time. So I brought a book with me. I lay down on the Barbie pillow on the Barbie sleeping bag next to the Barbie Corvette and at least Ken was in there. And then here's what Tori said. Dad, don't read. What's her other love language? Quality time. So practice communicating love based on your spouse's or your children's love language. And then here's the third take-home. You maintain intimacy with God. You maintain or master your spouse's love language and learn how to speak that fluently. And then model what you want to multiply. Now think about that. What is it you're trying to multiply in your home? Model that. Because your children will will become what you are. I had a lady come to me and say, Oh, my child's smoking. I said, Do you smoke? Well, yeah, but I'm an adult. I said, Well, don't criticize them for something they've learned from you. Model what you want to multiply. Here's some steps. Recognize that you are the most graphic living Bible your child will ever read. Resolve to create a healthy spiritual environment in your home. And then rest in God's provision because parenting is an awesome God-sized task. 
and He'll provide for you along the way. Would you stand for prayer? Father, I want to thank you for this precious time we've had together. I want to thank you, Lord, that you're growing us and stretching us to become more like you. And Lord, we're still trying to unravel how we are to express our faith in our society, in our marriage, and in parenting. We're still trying, Lord, to unfold the concepts and the process of leveraging our influence for the kingdom of God. Lord, I want to thank you that you're not calling us to do something you will not equip us to do, but that you will equip us. And so my prayer is that we will remain teachable and stretchable and malleable. And as you place us on the potter's will, that we will be molded and shaped by your hand. God, that you will teach us how to love you like we've never loved you before. That you'll teach us how to communicate love to our spouse based on their love language. And God, that you'll help us to multiply our influence through our home through modeling Christ faithfully and consistently. God, help us to be Jesus in this world. Help us to show people that they matter to you and to us. And Lord, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us, Lord, for those seasons of being self-absorbed. And may we model Jesus by doing what he did, and that's placing the needs of others first. And we praise you for what you're going to do in our lives to grow us, to be more like Jesus, and help us to nurture healthy families. And we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen.